Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Psalms. We're looking at Psalm chapter 1 today. And, uh, yeah, even through the Advent season, we are continuing through our sermon series on Scripture, Trembling Before the Word. And uh, this will culminate, actually, next Sunday. Uh, We are worshiping here at 1030, as usual, on Christmas morning. And uh, we're going to talk about the Word made flesh uh, next week. Uh, But today, we're going to be focusing on another aspect of this series. Now, so far, what we've been looking at mostly through this sermon series is kind of an intellectual or apologetic kind of defense for um, why we should have confidence in our Bibles. It's very common in the culture to see many attacks on the Scriptures, many criticisms that seek to undermine the authority of Scripture. So what we've been doing over the last several Sundays is seeking to answer questions like, is the Bible true? Uh, Is the Bible clear? Is the Bible complete? Is the Bible the English Bibles anyway that we have, are they reliable translations? Uh, Is the Bible understandable? Are there certain interpretive rules we can follow to actually get the message of the Bible? That was last week. And hopefully, you are now able to answer all those questions in the affirmative, and your confidence in the Scriptures are increased, and hopefully, as a result of that, you want to read the Bible more. That's really the whole purpose of this sermon series. But it could be that some of you have an even bigger question. It's not so much an apologetic or intellectual or theological question. But you might just have a personal question about about the Bible. And this might be the biggest issue you have with the Bible. It's a personal thing. And it goes like this. Does the Bible really matter in my life? Can the Bible make a difference in me? Is there any power in the Bible? I think that's a question that we all have, isn't it? We read the Bible. We hear the Bible preached. We have Bible verses on our refrigerator. We have the Bible on our smartphones. And yet it seems for some of us we're the exact same today as we were yesterday and last month and last year. We're reading the Bible, but we're still full of anxiety. We're still full of anger. We're still plagued by depression. And so we're asking this question, can the Bible change me? Does the Bible have any real personal relevance to me in my issues, in my struggles, in my challenges? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. The answer to that question I want to encourage you to realize is yes, the Bible can change you, but in order for the Bible to change us, we've got to not just merely read the Bible. We can't just expect that if our eyes just kind of glance upon a few Bible words on the page that somehow we're going to be transformed. Something more is required, not just reading the Bible, but giving a specific intentional focus and concentration on the content of the Scriptures. And that gets to be a challenge, doesn't it, in our particular day and age where it seems that our attention spans are challenge. I actually saw an article in Time magazine from last year 
that said the average attention span of a goldfish was nine seconds and the average attention span of a person is eight seconds. <laughs> and the article was saying the reason why is because of the digitalized lifestyle that we lead. Uh, the article was seeking to blame basically the smartphone for a reduced ability in all of us to concentrate. Now, I don't know if I really buy that, but it highlights the fact that if we're going to be changed by the Bible, there is a certain level of concentration and intentional focus that is going to be necessary when we read it. And that's in part what Psalm 1 is about. That's our passage today. Psalm chapter 1. Um, this is the entryway into uh, the 150 psalms in our scriptures. And uh, in this psalm, we have a very distinct contrast that's laid out for us between two entirely different ways of living. And we're going to see, kind of as we get later on in this sermon, uh, what a major difference is between those two. So let's stand now for the reading of this psalm. Psalm 1, if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a white paperback Bible in a chair in front of you. You can grab that and follow along. We will be looking at this text in some detail, so it will be good for you to have the Bible open before you. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, For his, excuse me, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes to see the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Psalm 1. Very distinct contrast that I'm sure you, you picked up uh, there on the reading of, of that passage. We're, we're going to have three points here. We're going to look at two different kinds of people that are contrasted, two different kinds of results in their lives, and then two different kinds of practices. The first two points are going to be actually relatively brief so that we can spend uh, some additional time on the third point. But first of all, let's consider this. There are two different kinds of people contrasted here uh, in this psalm. So you look at verse 1 and it speaks of those who are blessed. Blessed is the man. Blessed. What does that word mean? used often in the scriptures. Blessed just basically means a sense of well-being. The blessed person is the one uh, at peace. The blessed person is the one who has found joy in, in his or her life. A, a person flourishing and fulfilled. Uh, to be most simple, it's just a happy person, content in his or her place in life. And that's the person described here in verse 1. Blessed is this person. And later on, we see the contrast. It's verse 4, actually, where the psalmist begins describing the wicked. The wicked are not so. The wicked are not like the blessed. And so these are the two kind of kinds of people that are being described 
uh, so far, the blessed and the wicked. But if you go down to verse 6, you'll see this contrast a little more clearly shown. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. So now the psalmist is calling the blessed person the righteous. So the blessed and the righteous are the same people. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so here we see these two kinds of people, the righteous and the wicked. Now we consider all of humanity, all of the people who have ever lived throughout history and all of the people who are alive today on the globe in various countries and various cultures. And what the Bible says is that every single person can be divided up into one of these two groups. Either you're among the righteous or you're among the wicked. You know, when you look at surveys and polls and they ask you to answer certain questions and they ask you to check a box to kind of self-identify who you are um, by race maybe or um, income or the place that you live, and particularly when you read polls that are asking you about your spiritual or religious beliefs, we'll see all sorts of options that you can check to describe yourself. You can check off evangelical, you can check off born again, Maybe you can choose Protestant, you can choose Catholic, there might be an option for Muslim, there might be an option for Jew, there might be atheist, there might be agnostic. Now we even have a new category called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who don't have any affiliation to any religious view whatsoever. And it kind of gives the impression that all of humanity is broken into all of these many subcategories of people. But the Bible doesn't speak of it that way. The Bible says there's two groups, righteous and wicked. You're in one or the other. Jesus speaks this way a lot too, you know? Jesus says um, there's, a, there's, there's two different kinds of gates. There's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate, just, just two gates. The wide gate is the easy way that leads to destruction. The narrow is the one that leads to life. There's no subcategories of different kinds of gates. There's just two. Jesus talks about different kinds of trees, there's a good tree, and there's a bad tree. There's a tree that bears fruit, and there's the tree that doesn't. No subcategories, just two. You're either a good tree or a bad tree. He talks about uh, a house that is built either on the rock or on the sand. Two options. You're in one of two groups. He talks in Matthew 24 about the sheep and the wolves. On the final day, Jesus is going to separate all of humanity into one of those two groups. There's just two. It's not Republican and Democrat. It's not black and white. It's not Eastern and Western. It's righteous and wicked. And the question that this psalm is posing before us and challenging us to answer is this, which one am I? That's when you read this passage, that's the question you all ought to be thinking. Does God regard me as among the righteous or does God remind regard me as among the wicked. Now that should be something of a troubling question because when we think of ourselves, we, we know, at least if you've been at this church for any length of time, that the Bible would call us sinners. Uh, people who are born into this world with a sin problem, a heart problem, that we're born into this world in defiance against God. Um, even if you're not a Christian, you might know and realize and admit that there are things in your life that you're uh, ashamed of and wish you hadn't done and some guilt that you're dealing with. 
You look at these two categories, and if you're really honest, it's much more likely to uh, accept the title of wicked than the title of righteous. I think we all more easily fit into the category of wicked than the category of righteous. And that's a problem for us as human beings, right? So hang on to that. We're going to address that in a little while. But for right now, this is what Psalm 1 is telling us, two kinds of people, righteous or wicked. And the reason this is such an important question to answer is because it manifests itself in two different results. And that's the second point. Two kinds of results. We see this contrast in this psalm. Two kinds of results from these two kinds of people. And these results show up in this life and the next life. So in, the, in this life, we see this particular contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous in this life, verse 3, they're like a tree. See that? Not just any tree, but a tree that is planted by streams of water. That is a tree that has easy access to the nourishing flow of moisture into its roots. This is talking about a strong tree, a healthy tree. That's what the righteous person is like. This is a person, verse 3 goes on to say, it yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. That is, this is a tree that endures through the various seasons uh, of each year. So this is a tree that is under the hot sun in the summer, under the driving wind in other parts of the year, in the pouring rain, in the blustery snow, in the freezing rain and the ice. And yet this tree stands through every season and through every challenge that is presented to it. Um, we've been having some freezing rain, as you all know. Maybe some of you remember um, the ice storm from back in 2005 here in Muncie that pretty much brought our town to its knees. And uh, <clears throat> there uh, certainly were some trees that didn't fare well through that. <laughs> but most of the trees stood just fine through that storm. The more, majority of trees were standing strong through it all. I mean, have you ever just looked at a tree and just in the middle of a thunderstorm, just watched a tree, the winds are picking up, and yeah, the, 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 the branches and the leaves are swaying a little bit, but you look at the trunk of the tree, I mean, it's not shaken even a little bit. It's firm, it's solid, it's planted, is what verse 3 says, a tree planted, and the righteous are like this. The storms come, winter comes to the righteous. Hard winds and snow and rain come into the lives of the righteous, but, but they stand. They're not toppled. They're not turned over. But the wicked, they're not like that. They're very different. Verse 4, here's the contrast. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. So uh, what does this word chaff mean? Well, you know, these psalms are written in a very agrarian kind of culture. Uh, there was something called a threshing floor that uh, was generally a little bit on a higher elevation, up on a hill, kind of a flat surface, and the farmer would bring his wheat and kind of lift it up into the air so that the grain could fall down out of the husk. And when the heavier grain fell onto the threshing floor, they could gather up that grain. But then the husk would just be let go and it would just blow away in the wind. 
and it was up on an elevated surface so the wind could just take away that husk. That husk is chaff. That's what the word chaff is describing. And what the psalmist is saying is the wicked are like that. They're just blown away easily in the wind. They have no firm foundation. And they're taking off in a variety of different directions. So in this life, that's the description of the difference between the wicked and the righteous. But he goes on to say there's also a contrast in the next life for the difference between the righteous and the wicked. So the psalmist says about the righteous, referring to the next life, it doesn't really say explicitly what's going to happen to the righteous. Actually, if you look at verse uh, 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. So that implies a relationship, a close personal relationship that the righteous have with the Lord, uh, one that will last even into the next life. That's the implication. But more explicitly, we see what will happen to the wicked. Verse 5, they will not stand in the judgment. That's what's going to happen to the wicked in the next life. When they face God, they're not going to stand. They're not like the tree that stands. They're overcome. And even more specifically at the end of verse 6, the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked will perish. In the next life, when they stand before God, they will stand there in the clothing of their own works that the Lord will view as filthy rags, and they will be cast away from the presence of the Lord forever under his condemnation to suffer punishment in hell. That's the future fate in the next life of the wicked. So two kinds of people, righteous and wicked. Two kinds of results. In this life, the righteous are like a tree, the wicked are like chaff, but even more seriously in the next life, the righteous continue a relationship with a God who knows them, but the wicked are punished. Now, what is the main difference between these two in terms of the way they practice their lives, the things that they do in their lives? And here's where we get to the main point of this message. The central difference between these two kinds of people that have two different kinds of results, the central difference is what they do with the word of God. That's what this psalm says. That's how central the word of God is. That's how preeminent the word of God should be. That's why we've been spending all these Sundays talking about the scriptures. The central difference between these two is what they do with the word. So we got two different kinds of practices now. The wicked. Look at the wicked first. Now, it's kind of an odd contrast here because it doesn't seem really that even, I guess. The psalm doesn't talk about necessarily what the wicked does with the word. We get that more when he talks about the righteous. So what does it say about the wicked? What does the wicked practice or what is the wicked like? And what it says here in verse 2 in particular, no, verse 1, is that the wicked basically hangs out with the wrong people. That, that's, that's the problem. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is what the wicked person does. Notice this kind of slippery slope here. He, he first starts walking along with wicked people, and then he kind of starts getting comfortable, and he starts standing and hanging out a little longer, and eventually gets to the point where he sits, takes a permanent seat, gets comfortable with the wicked, and sits down 
among them. That's the description of the wicked we get here. The wicked like to hang out with the wicked. They congregate together. And this is a mark of a wicked person liking to hang out with other wicked people. Now, a question should immediately come to mind. Are you saying that I shouldn't be hanging out with people who are different than me or believe different than me or people who aren't Christians? Is that what this is saying? Is that what this is saying? We ought to just end all of our relationships with unbelievers? I think the answer to that is no. That's not what this is saying. And the reason we know that is because we look at the life of Jesus. And who did Jesus hang out with? Sinners. He hung out with wicked people all the time. In fact, that was what drove the Pharisees crazy. They were looking at Jesus. You're always hanging out with sinners. So, of course, we should be hanging out with people who don't believe like we do. But I think the main point here that the psalmist is making is that as we engage in these relationships with unbelievers, we shouldn't take their counsel. You see that verse 1? They walk not in the counsel of the wicked. The problem is when you start listening to what unbelievers are saying and you start to adopt their worldview, you start to think like them, you start to want to be with them more than you want to be with God's people. I think that's what's in mind here. And that's what the warning is that's being given to us. So that's, that's the practice of the wicked that's being described. But what about the righteous? What is their practice? What sets them apart? And here's where we get to the emphasis on the word of God. Look at verse 2. Here's what the righteous does. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's what a righteous person does. That's what makes a righteous person different. He loves the word of God, and he meditates on it. He doesn't just read it, He doesn't just put the verse on the refrigerator. He doesn't just download an app on his phone. He meditates on the Word. That is, he he focuses his mind on it. The, The righteous person chews on the Word of God. The righteous person turns the Word over in his or her mind over and over again. Reflects, ponders, camps, sits there with the Word of God. Focuses concentrates, gives extended attention to the content of the word so that as that truth gets in the brain, it begins to eventually trickle down into the heart. And you find your heart slowly getting warmed up to the things of God and the things of the gospel. That happens through meditation. Now you might be saying, well, I just don't have that kind of concentration span. I just can't focus like that. Yes, you can, and I'll prove it to you. When somebody offends you, really makes you mad, do you have any, do you have any trouble focusing on that? <laughs> do you have any trouble meditating on that thing that that person said that you found so rude? How could they do that? Man, it is easy to think for a long time about that isn't it? Or to use a more positive example, maybe this appeals more to the kids in the room, but how about when you're looking forward to Christmas and getting something for Christmas? You know, you can't wait to get that thing. What do you do? You, you meditate on it. You think about it. You concentrate on it. 
you can't wait for this thing. Mary and I watched a, a Christmas story a, a again just the other night. Uh, you know that movie, uh, Ralphie, who sees the Red Rider BB gun that he, he's got to have. And when he sees it in that window, he just focuses on it, and he's just concentrating on it. He's meditating on it. They show a scene later where he's lying in bed, and he's kind of thinking about his gun. He's just staring off in the space, and he's meditating on his Red Rider BB gun. So I actually don't agree with this idea that human beings can only concentrate for eight seconds. I think that's rubbish. We can concentrate on things. We concentrate on the things that really mean a lot to us. And what the psalmist is saying here is that the righteous person finds delight in the law of God and therefore wants to think about it. And that's what the person does. Here's another example, actually, in the Christmas story. You know the story of the angels coming. They find the shepherds in the fields, and the angel, I think it's just one angel, who says to the shepherds, unto you is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. And the shepherds are so excited about this, and they find their way to Bethlehem, and they find the Christ child, and uh, the shepherds tell Mary what the angel had said to them. And then it says this, about Mary. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. That's meditation. She meditated on what the angels said. This, friends, is how the Bible changes us. Not just by merely reading it, and not by merely hearing it, but by focusing on it. Here's the way Thomas Watson, a great Puritan writer, said it. The reason our affections are so cold to heavenly things is because we do not warm them at the fire of holy meditation. This is the way to have a changed heart. This is the way to get out of that spiritual rut. But it does take work. It does take concentration. It, it does take the willingness to go get in a place that is quiet and free of distraction, which I know can be hard to do. But that's what meditation is. And if you want something to meditate on, let me just suggest this passage in particular, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which addresses this question of the righteous and the wicked. Here's what it says. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. There's something to think about. There's something to dwell upon. If you're concerned about whether God regards you as righteous or wicked, what you need to do is simply trust in Christ because he took upon himself your sin, so that God could then look at you as righteous, even though you're not, even though in practice you're not, but because God in this glorious way imputes to you the righteousness accomplished by Jesus, you can say, without any hint of arrogance, you can say, I am righteous before God, not because of me, but because the righteousness of Christ has been given to me, credited to me imputed to me. If you're a Christian, you're righteous. You weren't righteous this morning when you woke up. You're going to make lots of mistakes later this afternoon. There's lots of things you're ashamed of. You're going to make a whole lot of more mistakes in your life. But if you're trusting in Christ, you're righteous before God. 
through faith. Isn't that something to meditate on? Isn't that something to think about? Isn't that something you, don't you want to linger there for a little bit? Do that in your heart. Your heart will begin to respond. So let me close here by just giving some, some practical ways to meditate. How exactly does this look? Well, when you look at a passage, maybe we can just kind of stick with the one I just showed, 2 Corinthians 5.21, you can ask some questions. What does this passage say about who God is? Just think about that. What, what is this telling me God is like? What kind of attributes? Holiness, love, patience, justice? What's, what's this telling me about who God is? And then think about that. Dwell on that. What is this passage telling me about who I am? What are my issues? What are my weaknesses? What are my needs? Not only as an individual, but as a member of the human race. Who am I? Ask what Jesus did or will do. If you're reading the Old Testament, you might have to ask what Jesus will do. What is that Old Testament passage telling you about what he's going to do in the future? You can also consider what he's going to do when he comes again, of course, which is what we're thinking about in this Advent season. But in particular, thinking about what Jesus did on the cross, where he shed his blood there. What, what is the significance of that? What did Jesus do, and now how should I respond? What is this passage calling me to do? And we can break that down uh, into some subcategories if we ask this. What is this passage calling me to do? Is there an example for me to emulate? Is there a warning here that I should heed? Is there a promise that I should claim? Is there a doctrine to be believed? Ask those questions as you're reading a passage. You can take just one verse and ask all of those questions. With 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think, is there a doctrine to believe? Absolutely. There's this wonderful doctrine of our sin being transferred to Jesus and his righteousness then being transferred to us in this great, amazing, glorious gospel exchange our sin for Jesus' righteousness. That's a doctrine that you're called to believe in. Even when you don't feel very righteous, even when you're carrying shame and guilt, you remind yourself what 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, the righteousness of God is mine. You can also take some time to just meditate on each word of a passage. You can look at a passage, take, take every single word and just reflect on it. Let's just go back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Um, for our sake, our sake. Notice it doesn't say for my sake. Why does it say for our sake? Well, that's worth meditating on. That's worth thinking about. What is in mind here is something that God has done for a, a group, a community of people, not just for you as an individual. You're part of a body. You're part of the church. For our sake, he made him. He made him. Who's he and who's him? And ask that question. He, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who, who's, Jesus didn't sin. Who sinned? That's my sin. My sin is given to the one who knew no sin. Just think of that phrase, knowing no sin. What, what is that like? Never having a sinful thought, never uttering a sinful word, never doing a sinful deed, never sinning by commission, never even leaving anything out that he should have done. Think about that. Meditate on that. And, and on and on you can go. Just look at a passage. Take each little word and reflect 
on what it means with specific emphasis. One other thing that you can do, another way to um, meditate, I got this from Tim Keller's book on prayer, which I think is, is really helpful. You can look at a text, read it, close your Bible, and then try to paraphrase it just from what you recall the verse said, just kind of speak it out loud in your own words. And then open the Bible again and look at the verse, and what you'll find is there's probably a few details there that you didn't include in your paraphrase. You, you overlook that. And now suddenly these little details have kind of new significance for you. Why did you overlook those things? Are these things significant? Do I need to focus more on these? So you take that, you shut the Bible, and then you do it again, and you paraphrase it out loud. Open it back up, see how closely you got it, see if there's anything you missed, and you can go through that cycle for a while until you think you get it down. That just forces you to think carefully about the details of a text, a good way to meditate. So friends, do, do you want to change? Do you want to change? Do you want to stop being so anxious? Do you want to stop being so angry? Do you want to stop being so depressed? I'm not saying that this is a magic bullet that's going to fix all those problems forever. I'm not saying that. We carry a lot of baggage with us and a lot of sin with us. But if you want to change, if you want to take some steps forward, some even small steps forward, then delight in the Word of God and meditate on it day and night. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have provided for us a means by which we can be changed. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, <coughs> your Holy Spirit who joins with your word. We thank you for your promises to us, your warnings to us. We thank you for the goodness of the gospel that is in your word. Lord, help us to be people who meditate, who think, who focus, and change us. Change us by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.